So Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 8 says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Working at Rusty and Lisa Stiles' place this week, putting a new roof on their house, and, and little Jake was outside, I think, most of the time that we were out there, and he's buzzing around. He kept yelling up to me, Hi, Pastor Greg. When I came back from lunch, I get out, and here comes Jake, come buzzing out from the garage, and he's pretty eager to see me, and he comes up to me, and he says to me, He says, So who's the construction worker now? And I look at him, and he's got this little set of bags, his little tool bags, like we'd been wearing and working on the roof all day. And he's got this little set of bags on his hip and his big beaming smile on his face, and he's like ready to go. You know, and I said, wow, Jake, that is awesome. Let me check those out. And I looked over his new bag, his little bags and stuff, and it was just, it was adorable is what it was. He was figuring that, hey, I got some of the equipment I see those guys using. I've got what it takes. I'm the construction guy now. Well, it kind of reminded me of our study of the book of Hebrews because that's kind of what we're doing. We're looking at these heroes of the faith, these heroes of our past, our forefathers in the faith, and we're looking at what they had in their life that made them pleasing to God, that made them be able to accomplish the things that God had for them to do. And we're trying to do like what Jake was doing. We're, we're trying to get the tools that they had in their life and get them in our life so that we can follow the same examples. And so we can be those people of dynamic faith like they were. Well, what do we learn about faith when we look at Abraham? With Abel, we've looked at faith that worships. With Enoch, we looked at a faith that walks with God. With Noah, we looked at a faith that works. Well, with Abraham, I think it's pretty obvious that it's, we're looking at an obedient faith. Obedience is going to be involved in everybody's faith. But this is the one, the one characteristic that really stands out as we look in the passage. It says, by faith, Abraham obeyed. And at the beginning, it talks about him obeying as he's called to come out of Ur of the Chaldees, to come out to the place that God's going to show him. And then it talks about Sarah a little bit and her faith in conceiving a child in her old age. And then it talks about Abraham again. And this time it talks about him when, he's, when his faith is tested. And how does God know that Abraham's faith is genuine? Because he obeyed in that as well. And so it's really the obedience of faith that we're looking at when we consider Abraham. 
there's basically five different qualities that we're going to recognize in here that deal with this faithful obedience that we see in Abraham. This first quality that we see in Abraham is the priority of this faithful obedience. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. God comes into Abraham's life here at this point, and the best we can tell is Abraham was probably polytheistic at these times. He was probably worshiping a host of gods. Um, it's, it's what we see and what we can find of the remains of Ur of the Chaldees and the surrounding areas. It was a highly prosperous city. Uh, more comfort than most cities uh, in the region and the area back at, that, back at that time. It was quite a developed society. But God comes to Abraham in this place, Ur of the Chaldees, and he tells Abraham, I want you to pack your bags. You're going to leave your people, you're going to leave your place, and you're going to go out to a place that God doesn't even tell him where it is. He says, you're going to go out to a place that I'm going to show you. And Abraham does it. He's leaving everything. He's changing his religion. He's changing his location. He's supposed to be leave, moving out from his family's house. He takes his dad and his, and his nephew. He ends up waiting in Haran until his dad dies. His nephew Lot would go on with him from there, but Lot's going to be kind of a thorn in the side. You know, it's not an easy decision to pack up and move away from family. I know we did it when we went off to Bible college and then we confirmed, kind of confirmed that decision when we made the choice to move up here to, because then it wasn't a temporary situation like going to college. It was a permanent situation like moving to a new place, making a new place your home. And we're from obviously out in Washington State and so we're leaving behind grandparents and aunts and uncles and cousins of our children and, and uh, that, that's a tough decision. Well, Abraham has a, a new faith. And he's going to a new location that he doesn't even know what it is yet. And so we see the, the priority of this in his life. But you know what? It, it doesn't really matter if we leave one location or not. All of us as Christians have to deal with this in our life. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, our faith has to be genuine. It has to be real. It has to become the priority in our life. It's like what Jesus says if, you don't, if you're not willing to leave father, mother, sisters, brothers, the whole family. For me, you're not worthy of me. He went to one person one time and he said, follow, the guy came up to him and said, I will follow you, but let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said, let the dead bury their dead. Now there's some things in that passage that maybe it wasn't quite that immediate of a death that we're looking at. But, but the point is, Jesus demands that we put him first. God demands that our faith is a priority in our life. And for Abraham, our obedience is part of our faith. So his obedience, his decision to pack up and move, is part of that faith. It's how he demonstrates his faith. And so that obedience is a priority in his life. He puts it about above everything else. You know, it's the same thing that we already started to talk about a little bit with Noah last week. Remember it says Noah condemned the society that he lived in? And you remember how we talked about how Noah being a righteous person, his behavior, his mindset condemned the society around him. In other words, he didn't fit. He wasn't at home anymore. That's exactly what we find as we get a little bit farther into the passage. It says that Abraham, he went and lived in the promised land, the land that was promised to him. You realize he never owned it during his lifetime? He lived on it. He roamed around like a nomad, which wasn't even that common of a thing during his day. Most people lived in homes, not uh, tents. It says he lived in the land that was promised to him as if he was in a foreign land. 
And then it goes on and talks about, he says, all these people are that way. All these people of faith, they're strangers. They confess that they're strangers in this land, that, the, that this world is not their home. Why? Because they're seeking a city whose builder and maker is God. That's what I'm talking about. We're going to get up to Moses as we look at him next week. And it says that he refused. He was raised in the palace. He was raised in Pharaoh's home in the palace. And it says Moses would refuse to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to suffer with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. So Moses, in the home that he's raised in, in the world that he's raised in, in in Pharaoh's household, says, this is not mine. This is not me. I'm not at home here. When we come to a genuine faith in Christ, something changes. The world looks different now. You see things differently. I remember the the time I came to Christ, I was 20 years old. I remember when I came to Christ, all of a sudden things were clear that were kind of murky before about why I was here and what my purpose is in life and, and what's this all about. And all of a sudden things were clear. I began to see the world differently. Some things that I maybe was okay with before I wasn't so fond of anymore. Things needed to start to get out of my life and other things needed to come into my life. And there was a, a dramatic change that started to take place within me. And that's, that's the thing, is that this faith of yours becomes so, such a priority in your life. It's really the key factor in our life. It, it always makes me proud, and it's happened on a number of occasions that I can think of, where people uh, from our church have told me about incidences where they're, they have a friend or maybe somebody that they're getting to know, and the person tells them, aren't you just a little too into this faith thing? Isn't this a little bit too big of a deal in your life? And yes, I am really into this faith thing. No, it's not too big a deal. Because if we recognize who we're trusting in, how can it be too big of a deal? But, the, but that's really the whole point, is that when uh, our faith should steer our life, it should be the, the, the deciding factor in our decisions and in, our, in the way that we conduct our life and the values that we hold as important and the, and the things that we participate in and the things that we separate from. That's what it was for Abraham. He was willing to pack up and move away from everything that he had known because it was such a priority in his life. John MacArthur described it this way. He described it as a pilgrimage. He, he says, when any person comes to Jesus Christ, God demands of him a pilgrimage from his own old pattern of living into a new kind of life, just as Abraham's faith separated him from the paganism and unbelief and started him toward a new land in a new kind of life. Second Corinthians chapter 5, 7, verse 17, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, it says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, it says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. You see, it's part of the purpose of Jesus coming and dying on that cross for us was to deliver us out of this present evil age. The world isn't drawing closer to God. The world isn't getting more godly. It's a present evil age. And, and when we come to Christ, there's kind of a separation that takes place because we begin to see things differently because of the priority of our faith. In 1 John chapter 2, he puts it this way in verse 15. He says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You see, there's a present evil age, this world system that is so opposed to God that if we love that, then the love of God can't be in us. You can't have both. 
It's like Jesus said when he said, you cannot serve God and money. You will hate the one, cling to the other. In James chapter 4 and verse 4, he says, You adulterous people, you do not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The Apostle Paul writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy tells him, No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. And so over and over and over through the New Testament, it tells us, look, there's this world system out there. And once you come to Christ, you don't you no longer feel a part of it. You can no longer be at home in that world system because your faith is your priority. It's your guiding factor in your life. And the world is, is not does not line up with that very well. Um, I think in First Corinthians chapter six, he says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. And touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. You see, in in our life, before we come to Christ, we live in this sinful world, and we're part of this sinful world. But when we come to Christ, you cannot come to Christ without leaving the world you were in, without leaving the sinfulness of it. It doesn't mean that all of your relationships are broken. It doesn't mean that you have to pack your bags and move to a new place. It doesn't mean that you come and move into the church and we all just live together in here and isolate ourselves from the world. Far from it. But we don't really belong to it anymore. We turn from that old way of life to the new way of life in Christ. And we illustrate that with our baptism. And that's exactly what he's writing to these Hebrew people to do. Remember, he's been telling them they're tempted at looking back to their old lifestyle. In fact, a little bit farther down in the passage, he tells them, uh, I think it's in verse 15, if they'd been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. In other words, he says, look, Abraham could have moved back to Ur of the Chaldees. Isaac, Jacob, same thing. If they would have thought about that and considered their old life, they could have went back to their old life if they wanted to, but they, they wouldn't because of faith. These Hebrew people are looking at going back to their old life. They're being persecuted for their faith and they're saying maybe if we just go back to the temple, offer the sacrifices there, go back to the old way. He's telling them, look, they could have too and they didn't and you won't either. Not if you're truly trusting. In order to follow God, Abraham had to come out. He says, you know what, it's the same thing for you. If you're following God here, you've got to be willing to come out. Come out maybe of of your old influences. Come out of your old way of thinking. Come out of your old lifestyle." You've got to come out of that. It's just like he says, he's going to say in uh, chapter 13 of the book of Hebrews and verse 13, he's going to say, therefore let us go to him outside the camp. So we're talking about Jesus being taken outside of the city of Jerusalem to be killed. He's saying, let's, let's, let's go to him outside the camp. Jesus had to go out and we're going out with him. You see, that's the priority of faithful obedience. But not only do we see the priority of this faithful obedience, we also see the patience of it. It says that Abraham went out and he lived in a tent. Like I said, he was from Ur, the Chaldees, which was a, a prominent city. That city enjoyed luxuries that other cities around it did not enjoy. That city was the home of the, of the dignitaries and the kings and the queens of the dynasties that would come, uh, that would be over that area. It was uh, really the lap of luxury. 
And Abraham would leave that to go out into a tent. And you know what? He would live in that tent for the rest of his life. That's some patience. You've got to be patient living in a tent. You know, I'm going to do some camping this week. I'm leaving this afternoon to go out on the lake, and we're going to go out and pitch a tent, live in a tent for a while. Camping, pay hundreds of dollars to go live like a homeless person for a week. Our family goes with us. Our kids meet us there. They, we go shuffle everybody out there, and we enjoy that time. I remember my uh, daughter-in-law, Leslie, one time. She came camping with us for the first time, and she was like, Why do you guys like sleeping in these tents? I said, We don't. <laughs> we, we, don't, we don't like sleeping in the tent. You only sleep in the tent so you can be there for the campfire at night until way after dark. And you, you're, you sleep in the tent so that you're already there when you get up in the morning. And you can make some pancakes, put on some coffee, that's for Lisa, and go out fishing. That's why we sleep in the tent. The tent is not the highlight of the thing. If anything, it's a low point to the trip. You know, you didn't take some patience to live in a tent. I'm looking forward to this time of camping, but I'll tell you, I'm already thinking, okay, maybe Wednesday we'll come in for a shower. Maybe <laughs> if it rains, we're home and sleeping in bed. We'll go back out in the morning. You know, <laughs> I'm already thinking, you know, but I'm, as much as I love to camp, I'm already weighing those options. These people were patient. Notice what it says. It says Abraham lived in tents with Isaac and Jacob. Now, you kind of read through that. It kind of sounds like three buddies on a camping trip, but it's not. Isaac is the next generation after Abraham. Jacob is the next generation after that. So what's the point that he's making? Abraham was called to follow God, and for at least three generations they'd be living in tents in the wilderness. He points out, he says, that these people all died without still not having received the promise. They were patiently waiting for God to fulfill His promise. You know, God told Abraham right at the beginning, your descendants are going to be like the sand on the seashore, like the stars of the sky. They're going to be innumerable. And he would tell him that when he's 75 years old, and then he would give him a child when he's 100. He'd make him wait 25 years. He tested his patience. Are you going to trust? Are you going to trust? Are you going to trust? 25 years. And he blew it one time. They had Ishmael with Hagar. Moment of blowing it, but overall, he's a man of faith. But you know what? He never saw the huge amount of descendants in his lifetime. He never saw Israel becoming a nation and owning the promised land in his lifetime. But you know what I was thinking about the other day? I was thinking about the things that he's seen since then. Right? He's not, he's not dead. I mean, he died here, but he's living in heaven right now. Jesus used Abraham. Says God says, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God is not the God of the dead. God's the God of the living. And he literally has innumerable descendants. And the three largest religions of the world all claim him as their father. They lived in tents for generations waiting for the promise to be fulfilled. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 36 says, You have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. You know what the Bible throughout the other places in the New Testament and the Old Testament teaches us that we ought to have the same kind of patient trust in God. In James chapter 5, verses 7 and 8, it says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains? You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, Therefore, because the resurrection is true, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. He's saying, look, stick with it. Be patient. Endure. Keep going. Why? Because of the resurrection, we know that nothing you do in the Lord is in vain. 
It's all profitable. And then also we think of Job. Job is a model of biblical patience. He says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. You know, Job was patient. He was suffering. He was enduring a lot of things. Even his wife would get to the point where she'd say, Why don't you just curse God and die? And Job says, We get good at the hands of God. Will we not get bad as well? Good things are going to happen in this life. Bad things are going to happen in this life. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to wait on God. And I know that after my flesh has seen corruption, I will see him. And that's what the author is telling these people. Faith is about being patient. It's about hanging on. It's about waiting. It's about trusting. None of these people saw the answer to this promise in their lifetime. It comes afterwards. But they longed for it. They spent their whole life looking for it. In fact, look toward the, toward the end. After it gets done with Abraham, after it gets done with Abraham, it deals with Isaac and then Jacob and then even Joseph. All three of those are men, the old men, at the end of their life, about to die. And what do they do? They're all still looking forward. They're all still looking to the promise. Isaac is going to bless Jacob and pass the blessings that he got from his father, the lineage, on to Jacob. Jacob is going to bless Joseph. Joseph is going to speak about when Israel is going to be delivered from Egypt. And he wants, he says, take my bones with you when you go. I don't want to be left behind. And so all of those people, patient, still looking forward, even on their deathbed, still don't have the promise, know it's coming. Because they're pursuing a city whose builder and maker is God. Also we see the focus of the faithful. Their focus was beyond them. Their focus was in the future. Their focus was on God. It says all these people considered themselves to be strangers. They considered themselves to be as in a foreign land. All of them considered themselves to be seeking a city that is yet to come. I love, I love that. He says, he says they lived in tents, but they're seeking a city with foundations. <laughs> you know what? That's exactly what we're going to get at the end. If you skip all the way up to the book of Revelation... It talks about the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. And the new Jerusalem has 12 foundations. And on the, names of the, of the, on the foundations are the names of the 12 apostles. What does that concept of foundation stand for? Foundations stand for security, solid, settled, steadfast home. There would be no more living in tents. There would be no more feeling out of place or like you don't fit. We will finally be in a place where we are completely at home. But for now, our mindset, our focus, we're not home yet. I don't fit here. This world is not my home. I'm, I am just passing through like the song goes. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. I better stop there or I'm going to start singing it and that won't be good. Second Corinthians chapter 4, it mentions the same thing. It says, For this light and momentary affliction, which is amazing to me that the Apostle Paul could call the afflictions he went through light and momentary, but he did. He says it's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. All these people of faith, what do we learn about them? Their focus was on the unseen. They could, remember all the way back to the first week, they could see the unseen. And that's what he's saying as a Christian. We live our lives focusing not on the things that are seen. All the things that we see. I look out of the window there, I see Wayne's truck. Nice as it is, it's going to be a rust bucket one of these days. They're transient. They go away. The things that are unseen, that's what's eternal. He said that's why our focus is there. Well, that's exactly what Hebrews is doing. He's saying, look... We may not own the land yet, but God's promised it to us. We may be living in tents, 
but we're seeking a city, and we know we're going to be in this city with the builder and maker is God that has the foundations with the names of the apostles on them, and, and we're seeking a, a better home than this. Do you know what it really is? We're no longer satisfied. We're no longer satisfied with here because our focus is there. And that's where our blessing is. Well, not only do we have the focus of faithful obedience, we also have the pleasure of faithful obedience. Now, we do get pleasure from our faithful obedience, but that's really not what I'm talking about here. Because in the passage here, it says that because of this, because of this faithful obedience, it says that God is not ashamed to be called their God. So the pleasure that I'm talking about here is actually God's, that God takes pleasure in us as we faithfully obey him. Now, that kind of stems right from what we started at the very beginning. Remember at the first it said that it's by faith that these people are commended before God. In other words, that God is uh, well pleased with them. And then not only that, but also we find the sacrifice of faithful obedience. Faithful obedience sacrifices the things of this life for the next one. It's just like what Jesus taught us. Don't lay up your treasures on earth. Lay them up in heaven. Much better return for you up there. We sacrifice the things here to seek the reward there. Now, the example that it uses that is Abraham when he is called to sacrifice Isaac. And I can't imagine what that must have been like. God comes to Abraham and he says, take your son Isaac, the child of promise. Follow me to the place where I'm going to lead you. Sacrifice him there. They collect the wood. They take the fire. They got Isaac. There's a couple servants with them. And they're going. And for three days they travel. Isaac's as good as dead for three days in his mind. And that's why it says that he did receive him back from the dead allegorically. Because for three days he was certain he was going to have to kill Isaac. And so Isaac is what we call a type. He's a type of the resurrection of Christ. He's a picture of the resurrection. Now, he's thinking in his mind, as we all would. Could you imagine three days knowing you're going to have to do this? All the thoughts that are going to go through your mind. How can I do this? How can God fulfill His promise and me kill my son? How will all that work out? How, how can I take a knife and plunge it into my own child whom you love? I mean, picture your relationship with your kids. right? I don't know how many times in my kids' life that I just watch them do things. I just watch them and I, and I just say, God, thank you for them. And God, protect them. I don't know what I'd do if I didn't have them. I, I experience the same thing with my grandkids. I watch my grandkids just, just doing goofy stuff, just playing, just doing different things, and they bring me such joy. So many times I think, I just, I just break into worship right there. I'm like, God, thank you so much for my grandkids. I just love them to death. And I always follow up and protect them, watch over them. Abraham's relationship with Isaac was no different. Can you imagine three-day trip, the kid's acting like it's a camping trip. He's all excited to be going with Dad. Going to be going on a three-day trip, go up offer sacrifice. He's curious, where's the sacrifice? Abraham tells him God will provide it himself. And we're going to cap this one off by killing him? How can I do that? What am I going to tell Sarah when I get home? But you know what? In Abraham's mind, he knew that God, if he needed to raise Isaac back from the dead, God would do it because God was going to keep his promise. And the promise was going through Isaac. God had made that very clear. So Abraham says, you know what, I can trust God, I can do this, I will do this. And he gets all the way up to where it's all prepared, the altar's prepared, the, the boy's laying up there on the thing, and he takes a knife and he's about to plunge it into him and God stops him. Now God doesn't ask us to sacrifice our children in a physical way that way. In fact, that was one of the things that he condemned the other nations around them for. But he does call upon us to sacrifice different things in our life. He does call upon us to make our faith 
a priority in our life. And so you may lose some relationships. You may lose some things. You may lose some opportunities. But that's the whole point. In the passage, it keeps looking at these people and it says, what do all these people have in common? These people were all willing to lose that stuff because they had something better in God and His promises. That is really, as we talked about it before, that is really the epitome of faith. Is it no matter what it costs me here, I have something better in Christ. No matter what it looks like from my my temporal mindset and what's going on around me in the circumstances right now, Christ is always better. It's always better to trust. It's always better to obey. It's always better to be with Christ outside the city than to be without Him within the city. 